Hello, fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and my goal is to help you to teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. This week, we're going to be covering 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. And we've got a lot to cover here, so we're going to jump right into it. Grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now, to introduce the city of Corinth, and to serve as a brief icebreaker, take a look at the following pictures of these cities and see if you can identify them. Do you know what cities these are? And this first picture here is Manhattan or New York City. And then the second picture is Las Vegas. And then this last one is the most challenging of all. But maybe some of you will recognize this. This is Harvard, right? Harvard. Now, what if I told you that the city of Corinth in New Testament times was, was like a combination of all of these three cities rolled up into one? If I say that, what am I suggesting about Corinth? What would you expect it to be like? A couple of things here. If Corinth was somewhat like New York City, then we know that it was a place where money and business was important. Corinth was a port city that saw a lot of economic prosperity. So the culture there was very materialistic and money-oriented. The Corinthians defined success as having money and power. How was it like Las Vegas? Uh, Corinth was also a very sexually liberal society. Immorality and prostitution uh, were rampant in Corinth, and it was kind of known as the sin city of its day. Being a port city, uh, you had sailors frequently coming back to the mainland after months of being at sea, and, and that would lead to all kinds of debauchery and, and violence in the city. But what about Harvard? Well, there was also this intellectual aspect to Corinth. It was a center of education and philosophical thought, at the same time still being very pagan in its religious orientation with lots of temples and shrines and, and idol worship. So their views on God, morality, and commandments was, was very cerebral and, and dismissive of, of serious faith. Now imagine trying to live as a Christian in that type of environment. Probably be pretty difficult. And it was. The major challenge that the saints of Corinth faced was to live in the world, but not of the world. It's not easy to be constantly exposed to and surrounded by these kind of influences and not be touched by it in some way. And you're going to get that sense as, as you study the two books of Corinthians. The members there are struggling to live as becometh saints in this very wicked environment. Those struggles are causing problems within the church. Paul's going to try to help and solve those problems, help them to overcome those problems. In fact, sometimes I like to refer to the epistles to the Corinthians as a book of problems. What are some of those problems? Let's identify those first, at least the ones we're going to cover this week. Look up the following verses and see if you can identify three of the problems that the Corinthian saints are struggling with. Read them and see if you can pinpoint the issues. We've got chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 1, verse 18, along with 2, 14, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. First, one eleven, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. So problem number one, contention and disunity amongst members. We saw some of that same problem back in Romans, and we're going to see it again in other books. Getting Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians to get along proved to be a significant struggle in the early church. Problem number two, verse 118. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, 
but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And then 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What's the problem here? Those with worldly wisdom making faith look foolish. There is a mocking of sacred things and faith within court. The learned and intellectual types within the city are, are looking down on the beliefs and morals and practices of the members of the church. And then finally, problem number three, chapter five, verses one through two. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among them, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he hath done this deed, might be taken away from among you. So problem number three is sexual sin or immorality. Remember, Corinth is partly Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Some of the members are being drawn into that lustful and lascivious mindset. And here you've got a member of the church who has committed a fairly serious form of immorality. But Paul's saying that the members are puffed up about it. Rather than mourning the sin, they're laughing about it. They're, they're cheering him on. So as you look at that list, do you think that the counsel we're going to find in the book of Corinthians is going to be applicable to us? Are the Corinthian problems relevant to our day? And I can't imagine your class giving you any other answer than a resounding yes. We're in the same boat as the Corinthian saints, aren't we? We, too, face the challenge of living righteous in the midst of a very wicked world. I'll mention briefly here that there is a fourth problem in these chapters, uh, found in the first half of chapter 6, and that is that the members are taking each other to court and suing each other. But for time's sake, I usually leave that one out. Let's take a look at each of those other problems in turn. I've decided to start with the third problem first, because I feel it's one of the biggest challenges that our society faces today. And if my time was short and I could only choose one of the problems to cover, this one would be it. Ezra Taft Benson once said that the plaguing sin of this generation is sexual immorality. This, the prophet Joseph Smith said, would be the source of more temptations, more buffetings, and more difficulties for the elders of Israel than any other. In my opinion, Paul deals with this particular subject better than almost any other scripture author that I can think of, with Alma the Younger coming in as a close second with his counsel to his son Corianton in Alma chapter 39. But as an icebreaker to this topic, I'd have my students try the following thought experiment. Consider the following scenario. A reporter from some distant and very culturally different country comes to visit the United States to report on America's views on love and sex. And for research, they come and they watch an episode of our five most popular TV shows. The five most popular movies. To listen to the five most popular songs on the radio thumb through five of our most popular magazines, and then analyze our nation's top five internet searches. With that in mind, what conclusions do you think they would come to about our views on love and sex? Give your students some time to think about that. Some possible conclusions that they could come up with. Here are some of my conclusions. Uh, Premarital sex is not only acceptable, but the expectation. Your first sexual experiences should happen in your young adult years. Pornographic indulgence is normal, acceptable, and rampant. Appearance should be the number one consideration when selecting a partner. Women are objects of lust and sensuality. All forms of sexual perversion are justifiable and tolerable. 
And there are many others that they could identify. Those are just some of the ones that, that I came Corinth had a lot of the same issues as our society. In fact, the term to Corinthianize meant to engage in, in sexual immorality. And the members there are struggling with this too. So Paul is going to reason with the members. He's going to make the case for morality or sexual purity. And he's going to give us six good reasons to be morally clean. And a little something that might help guide them through this scripture study would be this little handout, uh, something they can even stick into their scriptures. Because this is a lesson that they're probably going to need a little bit of help in interpreting. And so you're, you're going to want to walk, walk them through it and have them mark in their scriptures and, and maybe take some notes on this little hand. Uh, but it, it could just kind of help give some structure to the scripture study. So I'll make that available uh, as a handout this week. But first, he's going to start by identifying the world's most common argument for immorality, for increased sexual liberality. And can you identify it in chapter 6, verse 13? Paul says, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. That's the world's argument. Do you, do you understand what he means by this? And I'll help you out if you're struggling. The Corinthians are comparing sex to meat and sexual desire to hunger. In other words, hey, if there's this meat over there and I feel the hunger to eat it, why shouldn't I eat it? The hunger justifies the eating. If they're saying, well, it's the same with sexual desires. I feel this desire. I feel this hunger. And, and there's this opportunity to indulge in it, to satisfy that lust. Therefore, it must be okay to indulge it. If not, I wouldn't feel these things, right? Now, does the world still use that argument today? And if so, how? Well, in my opinion, Satan's tactics haven't changed much over the years. People today make that same argument, but they just use different words. And they'll say things like, hey, it's just natural. This is, this is human. There's nothing wrong with sex before marriage or pornography or infidelity. It's just too difficult to harness these sexual impulses that we have. So why are we trying to fight it? And you see, the world wants to turn us into mere animals that have no rational thought or agency or control over their behavior as if we can only react to impulses and stimuli. It's just meats for the belly and the belly for meats. So, you know, even that metaphor is false. Just because we're hungry and there's something available to eat, does that automatically mean that we should eat it or that it's a good or advisable or justifiable thing to do? No. What if the food is spoiled? What if it's poison? There are certain foods out there that are edible, but we know aren't good for us. And if we eat too much or too often, that can have serious ramifications on our weight and our health and our lifespan. There are rules to healthy and optimal eating and natural negative consequences for not following those principles. It's the same thing with sex and sexual desires. The Lord has rules for its use, and there are natural consequences for not following them. Now, Paul is going to give us six good reasons to be morally clean, and the first reason is there also in verse 13. What does Paul say is the consequence for living according to the meats-for-the-belly philosophy? The answer, God will destroy both it and them. And I don't think that means that he's going to start hurling lightning bolts from the sky and smiting people. But there is a type of destruction that comes to the immoral. There are negative impacts, negative consequences that come to the individuals themselves and to the relationship. Let's consider that for a moment. How can immorality destroy relationships 
and the individuals involved in Of course, there are things like STDs, unwanted pregnancies, that can come as a result of immoral behavior. But, but someone could argue, oh, but that's not going to be a problem as long as I'm safe and I'm careful about it. Are there other repercussions to relationships built on sexual sin? I like this quote from Gordon B. Hinckley, who is also quoting Elder John A. Witso. He says, I heard Elder John A. Witso say, it's my observation that a young man and a young woman who violate the principles of morality soon end up hating one another. I have observed the same thing. There may be words of love to begin with, but there will be words of anger and bitterness later. I agree with that statement. In my experience, uh, personally, knowing a number of individuals who have made moral mistakes, those relationships just don't seem to last. The world tells a powerful lie. That lie is, if you really love somebody, you have sex with them, and then that is going to make the relationship stronger. That's the way you show someone that you really care about. Forget about commitment. Forget about sacrifice. Physical intimacy is the end-all and be-all of expressing love. That message is blatant in the media. Just think of the last movie or television show that you saw where there was a sexual relationship between unmarried people. Not, that, not even that it's portrayed explicitly, but just suggested by the plot of the story. The message is clear. This is what people do when they love each other. But usually, in reality, the exact opposite ends up being the case. It does not make relationships strong. I know of a young lady who was seriously dating a young man who everybody else could see was not a good influence in her life. She ended up pregnant at age 17. Now, they did decide to get married, which at the time was promising. But I'll never forget her coming back to my office about two years later with her beautiful little girl and saying, I've decided to lead him. He just doesn't care about us anymore. He's almost never home. I tried to make it work, but it's over. The love was gone. The sexual sin did not strengthen that relationship. It eventually ended. I know of a man who decided that his sexual fulfillment existed outside of his current marriage and had an adulterous relationship. And that sexual sin ruined his marriage to a wonderful, faithful woman, and greatly impacted the lives of their children. After the divorce, he married the other woman. But a few years later, that marriage also ended in divorce. The relationship built on immorality destroyed both of his marriages. Now, I understand that this may be considered anecdotal evidence, but I could tell you 20 more similar stories that I'm personally aware of that are similar. And I'm also aware of a number of statistical studies that have concluded that relationships based on unmarried sexual behavior are more likely to err. I'll even provide a, a link to one of those studies in my notes here. My conclusion is that Paul is right. Sexual indulgence outside of marriage, the commitment of marriage, almost always weakens relationships rather than strengthening they get destroyed, in a sense. So reason number one to be moral, immorality destroys love. It does not strengthen it. Reason number two is also here in verse 13. What does Paul say about our bodies in verse 13? The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You might need to explain a little bit about this one as a teacher. After considering our first reason for morality above, the world might argue back and say, okay, then why do we feel sexual desire then? What's its purpose? And to this we say, sex was created by God for his purposes. It was not created for fornication. It was not just created as 
a recreational means of feeling pleasure. But for the Lord and the accomplishment of his plan. There is a purpose to sex, and it's a divine purpose. What is it? And actually, that's not totally accurate. I've been able to find two reasons, both backed up by the words of the prophets. So allow me to read you a few quotes, and I want you to see if you can find the two divine purposes for sex. First, Spencer W. Kimball. The union of the sexes, husband and wife, and only husband and wife, was for the principal purpose of bringing children into the world. Sex experiences were never intended by the Lord to be a mere plaything or merely to satisfy passions and lusts. And we know of no directive from the Lord that proper sex experience between husbands and wives need be limited totally to the procreation effort. But we find much evidence from Adam until now that no provision was ever made by the Lord for indiscriminate and then this from Parley P. Pratt. The object of the union of the sexes is the propagation of their species, or procreation. Also for mutual affection and the cultivation of those eternal principles of never-ending charity and benevolence, which are inspired by the eternal spirit. So the first and most obvious reason for sex is procreation, to bring children into this world. The family is central to our Heavenly Father's plan, and bodies must be provided for those spirits. Sex between a married husband and a wife increases the likelihood that the child will be born into the best possible situation for its growth and development. Interesting that it absolutely requires a man and a woman to bring a child into this world. There is no other way. And not that we need scientific proof to bolster revelation, but statistical studies have shown repeatedly that children born and raised in married households result in better outcomes for the child across a range of areas. Now, that doesn't mean that a child raised in a single-parent household is doomed, or that a child raised in a married household is guaranteed a good life and success. But there is a very strong statistical correlation between the two. Now, there is another purpose for sex that is suggested in those quotes as well. Parley P. Pratt called it mutual affection. Or more simply stated, it's a way to bring husbands and wives closer together. Sex provides a joyful, bonding experience that is sacred and only shared between the two of them. It makes that relationship different and special from all others in their life. If our sexual activities do not fulfill one of these two purposes, then I argue that they're wrong. So reason number two to be morally clean, to fulfill the Lord's divine purposes for sex. Reason number three is in verses 15 through 17. See if you can find it. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. This is, this is another difficult one. Paul frequently uses the metaphor of the body to refer to the church. The church is the body of Christ. And we are all individual parts of that body, working together to accomplish his work. He's going to go into a lot more depth on that metaphor in chapter 12. But I think the point he's making here is that your sexual immorality can have an effect on others and the church as a whole. How is that possible? How could one member's immorality affect other people in the church? Possible answers here. We may set a bad example for others around us. Because we commit that sin, somebody else may feel more justified in also committing. If an older sibling commits that sin, they pave the way for younger siblings. Our peers and younger people that look up to us may be affected. It may give the church a bad reputation to those who are not members of it. And they may say, 
See, members of the Church of Jesus Christ act the same as everybody else in the world. They may talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. I know of a missionary who committed moral sin while in the field, and that area had to be closed down for years because it was publicly known. Immorality can destroy families, and families are the backbone of the church. Immorality hurts spouses and children and parents and other loved ones. I think it's common for many to justify immorality by saying, hey, I'm only hurting myself. My response to that? You wish. Our actions impact others. And it's vital that we consider that when we're making decisions of a, of a moral nature. I'd like to, to take you back to a verse in Romans that would serve as a great cross-reference to our discussion here. Take a look at Romans 13.10. It contains one of the most important lessons that we can learn about love. And I'll preface this by asking what you think is usually the most common justification given for immoral behavior. If you were to ask somebody why they committed fornication or adultery, nine out of ten times they're going to say, we were in love, or I did this thing because I was in love. But what does Romans 13.10 teach us about love? Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. That's how we know if what's motivating us is truly love or something else. If it works ill to our neighbor, it's not love. So I might ask, does love fill a soul with guilt? Does love close the doors of the temple on a couple? Does love have to coerce the other person into doing something they don't want to do? Does love intentionally hurt the other person, either emotionally or physically? Does love hinder our prayers? Does love break up homes? Does love take children from a parent? The answer to each of these questions is no. Love worketh no ill. So if ills are brought about by our actions, we can rest assured that it wasn't love that was motivating us. We, we shouldn't taint the word love by justifying these kinds of actions with it. So that's another reason to be moral. Reason number three, we won't end up hurting others. Reason number four for morality, verse 18, which by the way, also contains the best advice on how to deal with the temptation of sexual sin. You could ask that. What is the best response to sexual temptation? Flee fornication. Run from it. Get away best example of this, Joseph of Egypt with Potiphar's wife. I love how it describes what he does. It says he fled and got him out when put in that situation. I suggest we do the same when confronted with that form of temptation. Flee and get out. And just for fun, I sometimes like to tell my students about an excellent technique for resisting temptation. I call it the Alma 1123 method. I tell them that if anybody ever tries to push them into doing something that they're not comfortable with, if somebody tries to coerce them into going too far morally, then they should point their finger at the other person, shout, Alma 1123, and then turn around and run away as fast as they can. And then the other person is going to be so curious that they're going to look that verse up and they're going to get their message. And I'll let you check that one out on your own. Alma 11.23 works wonders. Anyway, Paul then makes his point. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. This is an interesting Somebody may try to justify their immoral behaviors by saying things like, nobody gets hurt by me doing this. If I just practice safe sex, everything's going to be okay. Everything is permissible between consenting adults. Pornography is a victimless habit. I'm not hurting anybody. We've already decided that that's not true. But there's another individual that we are really hurting most. 
Who is it that we're sinning against? Ourselves. I think the point that Paul's trying to make is that most sins are external in nature. We commit them against other people. If I steal, I steal from you. If I lie, I lie to you. If I get angry, I get angry at you. But immorality is a sin that we commit against ourselves. We hurt ourselves. How? How does immorality hurt the individuals themselves? Again, STDs, unwanted pregnancies. There's the effect that it may have on our, our future relationships. Uh, we may open ourselves up to be taken advantage of. It can lead to addictions, amongst others. So reason number four, to be moral, we will not hurt ourselves. We won't sin against our own bodies. Now in the next verse, Paul is going to give a very specific consequence that comes to all who commit sexual sin. Our actions may not guarantee that we get an STD or an unwanted pregnancy or even that our relationships fall apart. But this is a guaranteed consequence. What is it? Verse 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in, which ye have of God? Based on verse 19, if our bodies are a temple of the Holy Ghost, what do you think happens to the Holy Ghost if we commit sexual sin? It leaves. We lose the Spirit. Reason number five to stay morally clean? We maintain the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Finally, reason number six, after all these arguments, you can see somebody saying, okay, Paul, I understand what you're saying. I get it, but I can do whatever I want. It's my body. I'll do with it as I please. And Paul says, not so fast. Look at the end of verse 19 and verse 20. And ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So no, your body is not yours. It belongs to God. This mortal body of ours is just a rental, and God sets the rules for it. He bought us with a price. What was that price? The atonement. Therefore, we have no right to use these bodies of His for our own selfish reasons. They're not our property. They've been created from materials that were His to begin with. They were formed by Him. And when we die, those materials will be taken back into the earth of His from whence they came. So they belong to Him, and therefore we must follow the proper instructions for their care and use. So reason number six is, we show respect and reverence for God's property, our bodies. Now that, that, to me, is a strong case for chastity or morality, in my opinion. And if you wanted to add one more quick point to this discussion, you might consider taking your students to chapter 7, verse 4. And the point there is that we, as individuals, do not hold the key to our sexuality. Somebody else does. And who is it, according to chapter 7, verse 4? The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Who holds the key? Our spouse. Right? Whether that's our, our current spouse, or we're talking about uh, our, our future spouse, if we're unmarried. So if somebody comes along and, and tries to pressure us into entering into an immoral sexual relationship, we could say, I know what you want, but what you're asking for is not mine to give. I don't have the key. It belongs to somebody else. So I'm afraid that this has to stop here. There you have it. Six powerful and logical reasons to be sexually pure. So, to sum it up, what a truth. Living God's laws of sexual morality 
just makes sense. When these principles are obeyed, blessings come. When they're ignored, there are consequences. To liken the scriptures, what evidence have you seen in your life that this principle is true? Our Heavenly Father has made us sexual beings for a divine purpose. And I bear witness that when we misuse these sacred powers, the consequences are real. So I encourage us all to do things the Lord's way. When we follow His rules and commandments regarding relationships, our lives will be filled with love. As Alma said to his son Shiblon, my favorite statement in the scriptures regarding love and, and these kinds of desires, bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. Principle is simple. If you want more love in your life, bridle or control those powerful emotions, and God promises to fill your cup with love until it runneth over. And I know that this may be too simplistic and, and doesn't cover everybody's circumstances. I understand that there are many different situations out there. And there are things like abuse and temple divorces and single adults who would love to be married but have not had that opportunity and same gender attraction and loads of other personalized situations. But allow me to share my personal experience and testimony. It goes something like this. I am so grateful that I had the guidance of these standards regarding sexual purity and relationships in my youth, and great leaders and loving parents that gave me the support and counsel that I needed to navigate those difficult years. With their help, I was able to bridle my passions and remain sexually pure throughout my youth. And when my marriage came, both my wife and I left for our honeymoon wonderfully naive. And from that union has grown a beautiful marriage that increases in love and understanding from year to year. That union has brought us four amazing children that have filled our lives with, yes, some challenges, but an increase of love fourfold. I know that not everybody's story works out like this, but I can testify that my life is filled with love, and I attribute that directly to, and I thank my Heavenly Father for, His divine law of chastity. All right, well, let's go ahead and cover our other two problems, maybe a little more briefly. Problem number two is contention between church members. And we already covered some great advice on this issue back in Romans 14 with despisers and judges. But Paul is going to give us some additional principles here and help in Corinthians. For an icebreaker, I like to do the following object lesson. And you know, I typically like to do object lessons that don't cost anything. But this time, you do need a special item to make this work. But it's only like $10 on Amazon which I'll provide a link to it in the video description below if you're interested. It's called an energy stick. And what it does is if you hold on to one end of the energy stick and then another person holds on to the other and then you join your other hands together, it lights up and makes a little noise. It's kind of fun. As soon as you let go, though, it stops. So the cool thing is, is that you can get your entire class involved with this one. If you have everyone hold the hand of one person and then the hand of another person to create a giant human chain. And then two people in the chain grab the ends of the energy stick instead of each other's hands. It's going to light up and make a noise, which means that the energy and the connection that lights the stick is passing through every single person in the class. It completes the circuit. And I've heard that this even works with groups of hundreds of people. And you can use that to illustrate the power of unity within the church. When we're unified, when we join hands, 
symbolically, and work hand-in-hand hand with each other. The light and power of the Spirit can be felt by all, and amazing things happen. But what happens when people stop getting along, when they fight with each other, when they allow contention and pride to sneak in? And I might use two people as an example and say, what if Sarah and Bob here stop getting along with each other and they begin to fight? What happens? And then I invite them to let go of each other's hands. The energy stick goes dark and silent. It has an effect on the entire group. We lose the power. Contention has much the same effect on our congregations and families and communities. Then I might ask, how many of you have ever seen contention between ward members cause significant problems? I'm pretty sure that most of us have had experiences where we've seen what contention can do and how it can affect the spirit of an entire group of people. That's not what God envisions for his church. Rather, he wants his saints to fit this description in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In order to attain this condition in our congregations, we've got to avoid the dangerous mindset of verses 11 and 12. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And what's going on here is that members of the church in Corinth are dividing themselves based on who baptized them. Some had been baptized by Paul, others Apollos, and others Peter, Cephas. And now the members are showing this very human tendency to categorize and rank themselves based on perceived value. For them, it was who had baptized them that set them apart. So one might boast, well, Paul, an apostle, baptized me. And another might say, but I was baptized back at the beginning of things, when Christ was still alive. When maybe somebody else who had been baptized by Apollos might feel like less of a member since they had been baptized by an apostle. To liken the scriptures to ourselves here. Let's brainstorm something. That may not be the issue that divides members of the church today. But what kinds of things do cause divisions and rankings to take place in our wards today? Possible answers. Social status. Income. How nice our cars or homes are. Political affiliation. Race or ethnicity which callings we serve in, perceived righteousness, even something as frivolous as which sports teams we root for have been known to cause divisions amongst members. So what are Paul's solutions to this problem? Well, I'm going to do one myself for you as an example, and then I'm, I'm going to assign you one to study and ponder for yourself. So let me take you to 1 Corinthians 1.13, the following verse of the ones we just read. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, the key is in that first question. Is Christ divided? Now, when it comes to church, we've got to put the worldly differences behind us and focus on what unifies us. And the thing that unifies us, no matter who we are or where we're from, is our common belief and commitment to Christ. Christ isn't divided. These worldly issues that divide us have nothing to do with the gospel of Christ. Christ doesn't consider or care about those kinds of things. Does Christ care what my income is? Does Christ care what race I am? Does Christ care what sports team I root for? If the answer is no, then I should put every effort into setting those differences aside. Instead of dividing ourselves up into cliques and factions, we can unite ourselves around Christ. You may live in an affluent neighborhood, and I live in a trailer park, but we both believe in Christ's atonement and rely on it. 
You may be a Democrat and I'm a Republican, but we both worship in the same temple. You may root for the Cougars while I root for the Utes, but we both have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. One solution to contention and disunity is to focus on our common Christian values and beliefs and forget about the temporal differences that divide us. When we associate with each other as disciples of Christ, we strive to put all those other kinds of issues behind us. Now I want you to give it a try. Paul's going to give us two excellent metaphors to describe what Christ's church is meant to be like. He's also going to give us another one next week, probably the most well-known one, which we talked about already, which is to com- he compares the church to a-, a body, different parts of a human body working together. We'll talk about that next week. But this week, he gives us two additional lesser-known metaphors. Each one can offer us insight. As a teacher, I'd number off my students as either ones or twos, and then assign them the following scripture references to study and ponder and to be prepared to answer the three adjoining questions. So ones are going to do chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, up to the word husbandry. And then number twos are going to do chapter 3, verse 9, starting with the last phrase of verse 9, to verse 17. And the three questions, what thing does Paul compare the church to in your verses? Two, why do you think that's a good metaphor for the church? And three, What truths about church unity does Paul teach by using that metaphor? Now, your students may very well struggle with this activity because Paul can be hard. But that's okay. We're trying to help our students learn how to study and interpret Scripture. So just give them some time to try it out and allow them to share their thoughts. And if they still struggle, you as the teacher can jump in and maybe help the class out a bit. Here's what I see. Number ones, 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 9. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husband. So what thing does Paul compare the church to here? Garden. Or as the footnote suggests for the word husbandry, a cultivated field or farm. We're all laborers in this garden. And I think that's a great metaphor for the church because a farm or garden requires lots of different kinds of work in order to grow fruit. Some plant, some water. And we're growing something wonderful here, something delicious, something that we can lay up in store for the future. We're growing Zion. And the fruit it produces will lay up and in store and enjoy for eternity. But it's not the specific work that you do in the church that matters so much that you're working. It'd be pretty silly for somebody who's responsible to plant the seeds to boast themselves over somebody whose job it was to water them. Saying something like, planting is where it's at. Those waterers should really get their priorities straight. Or either group boasting that they're the reason that the garden grows. It's God that gives the increase. God provides the sun the fertile soil beneath our feet, the, the miracle growth. Same with our church labors. God gets all the credit. He's the source of all that grows in his kingdom, and we're just the laborers. And whatever responsibilities that we have, from prophet to teacher to administrator, all contribute to the end result. Whate'er thou art, act well thy part. So, another solution to disunity in the church remember that no person in the church is more important than another regardless of what labor they perform in it god is the source of all growth and goodness missionaries that serve foreign missions are no more important than those that serve domestic those that serve as bishops are no more important than those that serve as primary teacher 
Those that have the gift of healing are no more important than those that have the gift of teaching. It's God that's giving the increase and the power in all of these situations. So of what have we to boast? Okay, number twos, chapter three, verses nine through 17, starting with the last phrase of verse nine. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So this time, it's the metaphor. Paul compares the members of the church to a building. What kind of building? It's a temple laid upon the foundation of Jesus Christ that's been set and established by his special witnesses, leaders, the master builders, which Paul is one. And what's our job? To build on that foundation. We're all in the labor of building up the temple of Zion. But it's verse 12 that really catches my attention most. It's a list of various building materials that you could choose from to add to God's temple. Do you notice anything interesting about the materials? Are they all of the same quality? No. You've got gold, silver, precious stones, then wood, hay, or stubble. Stubble here means straw. But then God plans to do something interesting to the build. Something that at first glance seems counterproductive. What is it? He's going to burn it. He's going to set it on fire. How would he do that? To test it. To test its strength and durability. A trial by fire. A refining fire. Some of those materials are going to survive and others are not. Which one? The gold, the silver, and the precious stones will endure. But what's going to happen to the wood, the hay, and the straw? They're going to burn. Great metaphor. And how can that help me? It causes me to consider what kind of offering I'm making in my church labors. Am I offering gold or stubble? Just imagine this. Can you imagine somebody placing a big piece of plywood on the side of the Salt Lake Temple? Or stacks of hay bales on the roof? very out of place. And when we make casual, lax, or, or less than our best kind of offerings, and that's kind of what it's like. When we're careless or negligent in our church callings, when we're sloppy in our obedience, when we give the Lord and each other token offerings or service. It's like placing hay bales on the temple. And let's take a moment to really liken the scriptures on this one. Just a personal pondering activity. Consider the following areas for a moment and ask yourself what kind of offering you're making. A gold offering or a stubble? In the way you serve in your church call, your temple attendance, your scripture study, personal prayers, efforts to share the gospel, Obedience to the commandments. Truth, what's our final solution for increasing unity in the church? Can strive to give our absolute best in our gospel labors. In conclusion, Jesus once taught us that a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
I'm certain that if we can focus on what unifies us, recognize the unique contribution that each member offers, and offer our very best in our labors, then we're going to stand more unified as members of Christ's church. The energy or power of the Holy Ghost is going to flow through us as we stand hand in hand, connected by a common set of beliefs and practices. Our garden will grow and be fruitful and beautiful. And the temple of our wards and congregations will stand majestically and splendidly covered in the gold, silver, and precious stones of our obedience, dedication, and sacrifice. United we stand, divided we fall. By the way, this is not going to be the last time we talk about this idea. Paul has a lot to say about church unity in his epistles, so stay tuned. Now, let's take a look at our final problem. For an icebreaker, fairly simplistic activity. It's a word on scram. I have a list of four synonymous words that describe what I feel is the world's number one weapon of choice when it comes to attacking faith. Seems like this is their major tactic when it, when it comes to opposing religion or belief in the divine. Can you figure out what these words are? And like I said, they're, they're different ways of saying the same thing. What's the world's preferred method of assaulting faith? With the youth, I'd offer a small reward to those who can identify the words. You could do this with the PowerPoint slide or on a whiteboard or as a handout. And I'll make the slides and handouts available to those that are interested. But what are the four words? We have mocking, ridicule, scorn, and contempt. My experience, this seems to be the major way the world attacks faith. It's not rational debate. It's not mutual respect and discourse. It's not about building up and fortifying their own position. It usually just boils down to attacking the opposition with a high degree of derision. Because if I don't agree with faith or belief in the divine, I don't really have to prove my side. I just have to make your faith look foolish enough to the point I feel I win. Examples of this? Celebrities like Bill Maher, Richard Dawkins, George Carlin, the guys who made the Book of Mormon musical. What's their major weapon against religion? It's ridicule. And these, these are very funny, talented, clever people. Is it any wonder that in Lehi's dream, the symbol for the wisdom of the world was a great and spacious building? What is the activity of choice for those in the building? To mock and laugh at those that are outside of it. Apparently, there really isn't anything better to do with it. My experience, most people out there don't want to sit down and have a rational discussion with us about why we believe what we do. They mock the fact that we often can't produce tangible, empirical evidence of what we believe. But faith, by its very definition, is, is neither provable nor unprovable. That's the way our Father in Heaven is arranged for our mortal experiences to be. We're being tested. I might then ask my students if they've ever personally had this kind of experience in their life. Have you ever had your faith mocked? What happened and how did you react? I know that I've experienced this. I remember speaking to a man who asked me if I really believed in gold plates and angels and miracles. And I said, yes, I do. And all he said to that was interesting. He just gave me this look, this smug, mocking smirk. And maybe you've seen that before. To the world... Things like gold plates and angels and miracles will always appear to be foolishness to them. Well, the members of the church in Corinth are facing the same kind of issue. Paul understands that, and he's going to offer them and us some help. So that's going to be our next major question. What can help us to stand firm in the face of scorn? And here is a brief activity that you could do with your students. Place them into groups of four and assign them one of the following scripture references with this question in mind. How could your assigned scriptures help someone to be stronger in their faith in the face of mocking? 
give them a chance to study and ponder their assignment and then to share their thoughts with the other three individuals in their group. And you can bring the class back together and ask if anyone would like to share their thoughts or if anyone felt like somebody in their group really hit the mark and gave a great explanation. And then, if you like, you're always welcome to add your own thoughts as a teacher as well. For the sake of the video, I'll offer you some of my thoughts on these verses too. So, chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. One thing that's going to help us to stand firm in the face of mocking is to remember that one day the tables are going to be turned. At some future time, God will destroy the wisdom of the world, and we will all have our faith wonderfully confirmed. One day the laughing will stop, and those that deemed us to be fools will be revealed to have been the foolish all along. Their mocking will all be brought to nothing. But until that day, we've got to endure. Chapter 2, verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Something else that can help us is to make sure that our faith stands in the power of God and not the wisdom of men. Remember that the most firm foundation you can build your faith on is the rock of our redeemer. Don't build it on other people or men's wisdom. We don't believe in certain things because somebody reasoned us into it or proved the truth to us. The just shall live by faith. We've got to be careful not to have our faith simply stand on the words of, of parents, friends, missionaries, or even church leaders, but in the power of God. If we build our faith on Christ, on our own personal connection with him, then we cannot fall. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. We also need to realize that the way we gain spiritual knowledge is through the Spirit. How does the Spirit reveal things? In our minds and hearts. As thoughts and impressions to our minds and feelings within our heart. Comes through experiences provided us by God. Like answers to prayers, miracles, spiritual guidance. It comes through trusting the authority of God's special witnesses. His leaders, his prophets. So something that's going to help us to stand strong is to gather evidence for our belief in God's way. Not the world. Chapter 3, verse 2, uh, start with milk, not with meat. As it says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Well, stick to the basics until you have a firm grasp of them. One of the tactics of the adversary is to throw meat topics at the spiritually undeveloped, and their youthful faith just can't bear it yet. Sometimes it's better to focus on gospel fundamentals first, and then slowly work your way into more solid foods. Somebody who's a new convert may not be able to bear the more meaty gospel issues. I don't think it's wise to start throwing issues like the historicity of the Book of Abraham, the practice of polygamy in the early church, or DNA evidence in the Book of Mormon, at people that haven't fully grasped the concepts of faith, repentance, the restoration, and the plan of salvation. When others mock us on meat topics, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, I'm not sure I really understand that yet, but I believe that there are answers to those questions. One day, I plan to tackle it. One day, I'll be able to digest it. But I'm still a baby in the thing. I'm still working on the milk. So until that day, I'll act on the faith of what I do. Now, those are just my thoughts on those verses. Your students are probably going to come up with insights and ideas of their own, which is wonder. But the truth here, how to keep your faith strong in the face of mocking? Remember that in the end, your faith will be confirmed and vindicated. Build your faith on Christ, not the wisdom of others. Learn by the Spirit and focus on milk before 
And I believe a great way to conclude a lesson on this topic would be to just bear pure testimony to your class. Give them a, a simple, straightforward declaration of your faith. And then ask if any of them would like to do the same. Because we're exposed to so many of the other dissenting and mocking voices out there. It helps to sometimes hear a voice of faith. I'd be happy to do that myself right now. I want you to know, as my listeners, that I do sincerely believe in the things that I'm teaching. I believe in God. I testify that He's real. And I've had real experiences with Him. He's answered my prayers. I've felt His presence. I've witnessed miracles that in my mind can't be explained away by coincidence. I believe in Christ and in the power of His atonement. I've felt the power of that atonement in my life. I felt my guilt washed away through repentance. I felt its strengthening, comforting, and enabling power in dark times. I believe in the scriptures. I found great guidance, comfort, inspiration. I love them. They've changed my life. I know that when I live according to their teachings, I'm happier. I'm stronger in the face of opposition. I know that all of those books of scripture are good. I believe in the doctrine of living prophets. It makes sense to me that a loving God would send us leadership and authority and continuing revelation to guide us through our current time. When I listen to them speak and testify, both my mind and my heart tell me that they're sincere. They're speaking the truth. I believe in the power and the idea of faith makes sense to me that our Father in Heaven would operate His kingdom and world that way. This life is a test. And learning to believe and face opposition is a big part of that test. I believe that we can do it. We can stand strong in the face of the pointing fingers, the scorn, and the contempt. God can help us to do it. I share that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's going to do it, my friends. Uh, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope that it's helped you in some way. And if it has, I invite you to share it with somebody else that you feel it could help. Teachers, if you're interested in the materials that I make, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.